What's that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to. Um, all right, well, so for those of you who are not normally here on a Saturday night, um, we are in the book of Hebrews. We've just started uh, to go through the book of Hebrews, and this is part of our uh, journey through all of Scripture, through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We're taking five years to do it. Uh, we've just come off of a three-year trip through the Bible, and everybody liked it so much that we hit rewind and went all the way back to Genesis 1 and started again. Um, the reason we're in Hebrews is because this time around, going through the Bible, we decided to um, kind of bounce back and forth a little bit more between the Old and the New Testament. So wherever a uh, New Testament book particularly uh, draws on a, a, an Old Testament book, or a group of books, um, we figured, hey, let's just pop over into the New Testament and uh, hit it while it's fresh. There's no better book to do that with than Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews, so we're right in the middle of, we went through Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. We just finished Leviticus. Uh, we're in the middle of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And this is an awesome place uh, to go to Hebrews because Hebrews is basically a... Jesus-centric commentary on the Pentateuch. It really is. Um, packaged within this sermon exhortation. All right? So, um, for the next three weeks, we're going to be in Hebrews. I'm going to break it up. T- tonight, I'm going to go through, give some overall themes, give a little bit of an outline, and then um, look through the first uh, third or so of the book. But... Uh, for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be in this. And the, and the reading assignment, it's short enough to read all the way through each week. All right, Especially with a letter like this, this is a one-sitting kind of thing. right? It, it has a flow of thought, and it's one continuous uh, thought. So I challenge you to read it through every week. I also challenge you to, at some point in the week, try and do it all in one sitting. See if you can do that. Um, because doing that gives you... A perspective that it's that's hard to get otherwise. It's easy to kind of hone in on some of the verses, and there's some great verses or two or three verse chunks in Hebrews, and we'll look at a few of those as we go. But try and do the whole thing in one sitting. That's um, I think that's a good discipline uh, to practice, especially with the letters in the New Testament. All right, uh, let's see. So we'll start out just with the basic information about Hebrews. Um, I do have some, some, some thoughts, some application for us tonight. Uh, I think this is a timely word for us um, in this season of our church. Um, but we do, the, the other goal, that, you know, as we're going through the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament, we want to become really familiar with Scripture. We want to be literate when it comes to the Bible. We don't just want to be, uh, you know, a verse here, know a verse there know how to back up our favorite theological points with verses. No, we want to know the whole story of Scripture. We really want to know this book that, by the grace of God, has come to us uh, and reveals God to us. So, some, some uh, information about the book of Hebrews. That Obviously, the author is not fully known. If you have a King James Bible, it probably says the letter of Paul or written by Paul or something like that. We don't really know. The letter itself does not say. Uh, There's a lot of scholarly debate about who wrote Hebrews, but honestly, no one really knows. 
Um, some people think it might have been Barnabas, or it might have been Apollos, uh, who's a, an apostle that was mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, it's, it's hard to say. And honestly, it doesn't really matter in, in the long run. Does it? <laughs> what are we going to gain from knowing who wrote this? It's in the word of God. It has come to us, and we kind of take it as it comes. Um, the other thing we don't know about this book is exactly who it's to. It says it's to the Hebrews. That's pretty broad, a broad demographic. Um, most likely, it was to a group of, not a fully Jewish group, but a group, an early church group, that consisted of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And one of the things we do know about the recipients of this letter is they were likely very familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the, the books of Moses, because whoever wrote this relied heavily on his own understanding of the Old Testament, but also he must have been appealing to their knowledge of the Old Testament. He gives lots of examples for what he's trying to tell them from the Old Testament. Uh, really, that, that structures his book. The main purpose of the book, and this is important, whenever you're reading, we have these neat packages, right? And they're well-bound, they, they all look the same, it's great, great typography and format and book design. And we, we forget that each book of the Bible is its own thing. It's, and whenever you come to a book of the Bible, you have to ask, what is it? Because the book of Hebrews is very different than the book of Leviticus, which is very different than one of the Gospels, which is very different than the book of Psalms. So you always have to ask yourself, what is this? What are we reading? All right. It was likely a letter, but it's a little different than one of Paul's letters, which have kind of the typical opening and greeting and I'm Paul, I'm writing to you, statement of who I am, here's my audience. Um, it lacks all of those things. So this was probably a sermon or a homily, if you want to use the, the uh, kind of the high church term for it. This was probably a homily that was distributed uh, and written as a letter and sent. Um, but it was, a, it was kind of a sermon letter. So it wasn't just a piece of correspondence, like some of Paul's letters are. Uh, it is a sermon that was delivered as a letter. So it's a sermonic letter, you could call it. The purpose of this sermon, this letter, uh, is, I think you can wrap it up in one word, exhortation. Okay? And in, in the last chapter, in 13, chapter 13, verse 22... He says, uh, I'll just read it. The author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. So apparently, he, he must have been get, used to getting, getting long sermons. <laughs> he says, this is a brief sermon. 13 chapters of extremely dense and mind-blowing theology. But he says, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. So he says, this is an exhortation. All right, so that's its main purpose. Okay, so why? Why this exhortation? Um, once again, the specifics, the, the very specifics aren't known, but it's implied within the letter that the people receiving this letter were experiencing some sort of uh, problems. It's, it's centered around a range of problems stemming from a, a wavering or a flagging uh, devotion to Jesus. Okay, um, because of some hardship, there was some hardship. It could have been 
uh, some degree of persecution um, or something or just pressure from the surrounding uh, people, groups. But whatever it was, there was a wavering faith in Jesus that he's addressing. It's, it's a weariness, okay? And this was leading to sin. It's leading to apostasy, which is falling away. People were turning to other, it's Jesus plus maybe some other things. Uh, it's, it's leading people in an immature state of growth, okay? And there's a, there's a stunted growth that's happened. A stagnancy has settled, okay? Um, there's even, might have been some despair, okay? He talks about weak knees and drooping hands, he addresses. Um, so all of this is sort of wrapped up. So he comes to give an exhortation. An exhortation is a, is a great New Testament word. It's something that we're all called to do for each other. Within this book, he says, exhort one another. And what an exhortation is, is it's a, uh, Kelly Hahn described it this way. And who, who mentioned that the other night at home group? I think that was Rebecca Lee. But it's a, I think he, it's a muscular encouragement. <laughs> I like that, that definition. It's, it's, it's when someone looks you in the eye and, and they're not mincing words and they say, hey, you need to do this, right? Hey, let's get with the program. Get in the game. What are you doing? Okay, so it's, it's part of a, a group of words that make up the climate of the way we live our lives together. Exhortation, encouragement, rebuke sometimes, um, and those sorts of things. So, these people are experiencing hardship, difficulty, from whatever source, and it's causing them to doubt Jesus' sufficiency. Okay? To doubt whether they're doing it right. Okay? Now, can we relate to this? <laughs> Have you ever experienced hardship and you wonder, am I really doing this right? Is this really the way? Is this what life is supposed to be like? All right. That's the state of the, of the listeners, the original recipients of the letter. And I think we can relate to that immediately. We don't have to do any hermeneutical interpretive gymnastics to be able to relate to that. Okay, this is a common occurrence. It was common in the Old Testament. It's apparently common in the New Testament, and it's common today. The road gets hard, and we start to really wonder if this is how it should be. Is this what it's supposed to be like? Okay. If Jesus is who he says he is, why is life like this? Okay. So that is the setup for the letter. The author is countering all of this attitude with a brief word of exhortation. And the other thing, the final thing I say, I'll say by way of introduction is this. The content of his exhortation is not how to feel better about yourself, how to make sense of life, how to get yourself out of your despair. He doesn't say much about the hearers at all, except to exhort them. What he spends the bulk of his time talking about is who Jesus is. And why Jesus, the man, is the answer to every single one of their problems. Okay, he doesn't give them 
some sort of technique, some sort of program. He gives them the word of Jesus. And he just spells out over and over and over the depth of who this man Jesus is. That's how he helps them get out of their funk. (laughs) He brings them Jesus, sets him right down there, and starts to talk about everything Jesus is, everything he did, every reason why he's worthy of, of following. All right? So this book is about Jesus and about how sufficient and supreme and everything, every other superlative adjective you want to use. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. And so what his exhortation is, in a nutshell, is this. He does a deep dive into the Old Testament okay, to show them what? That if Jesus isn't cutting it for you, if he's not really answering your questions, if he's not helping you face life, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's not any lack on Jesus' part. This is user error, okay? Tyler, how many, how many times do you want to say, it's user error? He works in tech support in a bank. It's user error. No, the website's not out to get you. It's user error. That's basically the content of exhortation. You didn't listen carefully enough. You didn't really take the time to understand who Jesus really is. You don't really understand his whole purpose and mission. And as a result, you don't understand life as it should be. You're surprised by these things that are happening. If you really understood who Jesus was, you wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be despairing. Your knees wouldn't be weak and your hands drooping. So that's what it is. And to warn them that if you're thinking about shopping around, if you're thinking about going and getting some supplemental material to Jesus, then rather than helping you, that's going to seal you in the despair that you feel. That's going to cripple you for good. If you choose to abandon, to fall away, and that's why these, these somber warnings come in this book. I mean, there's some parts that make me uncomfortable. And they make me wonder, oh man, am I really, am I really saved? Right? Because he's saying, if you want to look around, and this should be a word that's familiar to us, having just gone through Exodus, Leviticus, if you want to go back to Egypt, what are you going to find back there? Not what you want to find. You're going back to slavery. Okay? So this is exactly, this is exactly relevant to where we are in the story of the Israelites, and it's exactly relevant to the experience of 21st century Christians still. All right, so outline of Hebrews, there's a number of ways to outline it. Um, I take a broad outline, and it helps me think through it. The first uh, four chapters or so, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, focus on the superiority of Jesus as God's Son. The superiority of Jesus as God's Son. Meaning that the Son is here, and now everything that was pointing to him, 
he has superseded and gone beyond and perfected, right? Angels, Moses, Joshua, all of it. All the story of the Old Testament, Jesus comes as the son, and here he is. He is superior to all of that. Chapters 4, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 18. It's a larger chunk, but it really hones in on the superiority of Jesus specifically as high priest. Specifically as high priest. So he takes one aspect of the Old Testament story, and he really zooms in on that. Say, all right, you understand the high priesthood. You understand all the sacrificial system and all of that. Well, let me show you how Jesus comes and he turns all of that on its head. Fulfills it, does away with it, all at the same time. All right? So that's the middle section of the book. It's all about the high priesthood and how Jesus is superior as the high priest. And then from there to the end, middle of chapter 10 to the end, we have an extended exhortation. This is where he really starts to say, so what? An extended exhortation to remain faithful to Jesus. Don't shop around. Double down on Jesus. Okay? Um, and that's really where his, the exhortational force comes in. And that's where we get the chapter on faith. Right? The famous Hebrews chapter, the Hall of Faith, where he starts listing all these people, these good examples from the Old Testament. And he lists a lot of bad examples of people who were faithless, people who turned away when it got hard. But he says, no, look at all these people. They faced hardship, and what happened? They remained faithful. Okay, And then he caps it all off with Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. All right? So... Um, I want to walk through some of the key verses in that first section, okay? And then we'll talk next week on um, that middle section, and then the third week on the last section. That's how we'll work through it. So chapter 1, verse 1. This would be a great passage of Scripture to memorize, uh, first three or four verses of chapter 1, because it says so much about who Jesus is, all right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having come as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, if you have to slow down anywhere, you have to slow down here. Okay? He just said so many things. Listen to this. In, the, in these last days, and that's important. A lot of times he's talking about the now. Okay, you remember... There's, a, there's an Egypt, there's a present, and there's a hope. There's an Egypt, there's a wilderness, and there's a promised land. A past, a present, and a future. Okay, And he's addressing the present. The problem is the present. We've been saved, and we know where we're headed. But why does it seem like it is? Why is it the way it is now? Why is life still complicated? Okay? We have this messy now to deal with, okay? So here's what he says. In these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. When we talk about inheritance, heir, what Old Testament figure, we've, we've talked about this before, what Old Testament figure is that? Abraham. Abraham. Yes. Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. That goes all the way back to the beginning, pre-Adam. Okay. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's better than Adam, or he's at least the new Adam who was created in the image of God. This is the radiance of his glory and the imprint of his nature. Okay. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, okay, so he has purified sin, he sat down, so that's a priestly, the priestly aspect of who Jesus is. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's the royal, kingly aspect of who Jesus is. All right? He's a son. He's been there since the beginning. The world came into existence through him. It's by his power that this world holds together. And he's the priest and the king, and he has been seated at the right hand. And that's important. The tense is there. Um, I forget who said this, but it stuck with me. Oh, it was was Steve Humble. I asked him him one time, how's it been going? And he looked at me, and he said, Jesus is on the throne. I was like, that's a great way to start the day. (laughs) Right? And the author wants to start his letter by saying, Jesus is on the throne. Before we get into life, before we start talking about issues, let's say this, Jesus is on the throne. Now, let's talk about your problems. Okay, that's, that's what he's talking about. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and he establishes, um, he talks a lot about angels here in the beginning part. And that's because uh, it was tradition that the the law, which came down on Sinai, the law that was delivered to Moses was delivered via angel. From God to Moses through an angel. Okay? And there's some mention of that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. But that became kind of the, the angels were the ones that delivered the law to Moses. And so what's he saying here? He said, all right, well, the angel delivered the law to Moses. Jesus is superior to angel. He has come down and delivered, he is the word of God. He has, God has spoken to us, not through an angel to Moses on tablets, but through his very son. Okay, what was, ta- what was delivered by the angel to Moses? Patterns for the tabernacle, the way God wanted life to go, right? The means to relate to God. So what's he saying here? The son, God has spoken to us, not through angels on tablets, but through the Son himself who bears the imprint of God. He's not words about the pattern. He's the pattern in the flesh. This is how life should be. Okay? All right, so he establishes that. Chapter 2, he says, Therefore, here's where he starts giving some direction, some exhortation. 
we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Read chapter 1. Now, do you still have questions about Jesus? (laughs) Are you still wondering? Okay? We need to pay closer attention. Okay? He said, maybe you need to go back and think about who Jesus is. You're thinking about drifting away? You're getting fed up with life? Let's revisit this. Go think harder. (laughs) Go pray. Go pray. Read your Bible for three days and then come back. Right? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Where, do you, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to find salvation? Okay, if the people who ignored the law received the wrath of God. What's going to happen to you if you ignore who Jesus is? You see his his argument here? Um, Go to verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But here's where the problem comes in. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We can all agree with that. (laughs) Jesus is in absolute control. Really? What about this tragedy? What about this? What about this? What about all this? We don't see it. But he's in control. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. All right? No, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. But what do we see? We see Jesus on the cross bearing the punishment For all that stuff that we don't like about the way the world works. For all that stuff that is wrong with the world. Yeah, it's there. And look at what it costs God. See what he's saying? No, we don't see everything in subjection to him. It's because of the grace of God. He's allowing people a a space to look on him and to choose him. He's giving people a chance to come back to him. He's sending his son suffering, dying on a cross, and giving us a chance to come back to him. So rather than all of the suffering that we see and all the ways that we don't see everything in subjection to God, rather than that being evidence of God not caring, it's evidence of God's deep Investment in humankind. If you understand Jesus, it solves the problem of evil for you. Because there was no problem of evil that Jesus did not experience when he suffered. Okay? 
And so he's saying, we don't see everything as rejection. Why? Because we see him who was made lower than the angels that he's superior to, humbled, suffering, bleeding, dying, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He tastes death so that people can have a chance to come back to him. Let's keep reading. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now we get a little picture. Why are things still like the way they are? Because God didn't come to make everyone stop sinning. God came to destroy the power of sin. And there's a difference. He destroys the powers and he destroys the slavery. Jesus came, it says, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Why do people sin? Ultimately, because they fear death. If you don't have to fear death, there's no reason for you to continue in sin. There is a slavery that the devil brings into people's lives that says, this life is all you have. And so you have to get back at them. (laughs) And so you have to enjoy yourself. And so you have to fill in the blank. All of the works of the flesh that cause pain and suffering in the world. You need to do this because this life is all you have. That's the bondage that we're in, that the human race is in, that Jesus came and broke. No, this life isn't all you have. And in fact, that's a lie. Because even if you think this life is all you have, and even if you don't want to relate to God, you're going to have to face him after you die (laughs) and give an account for all those things you did. So the power of the devil has been undone. Now, that gives us an answer. Why, so why, is this, why does stuff still happen in the world? Because God is able to deal with it. Because what we see isn't the end of the story. Because what we see as injustice, there is no injustice that God will not make right. Okay, and so we, we bear with injustice because God's going to make it right. He's already begun to make it right, and he will continue to make it right until the end. All right? Does this make sense? You following the, the, the story here? Don't turn away from Jesus because of what's going on in your life, because it doesn't seem to be working. You don't see it all correctly.
okay, don't relate to that stuff. Relate to who Jesus is. And all of that stuff will be worked out by the Lord. <clears throat> Go to chapter 3. He continues his conversation. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. JP said, Amen. <laughs> Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And he says, I like this, the Moses was faithful in God, all of God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful in God's house as a son. The servant acts a little differently in the house than the son. Okay, the son, it, it has ownership. The son has inheritance. He has a stake in it. The servant is just keeping things nice for a time. Jesus lives in it. It's, it's, what, he, it's what he is. Uh, all right. Okay, so we get to another exhortation. Verse 12, chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, these, these doubts, these little arguments that we have, is Jesus really the way? Why, then why isn't he doing this? And why isn't he doing this? He comes out and he says, you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Okay? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a hardening that comes on your heart when you continually test the sufficiency of Jesus. That's a place that Satan brings us. It's a, it's a deception. Okay? And we could become hardened. Is Jesus really the way? Is he really gracious? Is he really going to do Is he really going to make all this right? Is he going to do this? I don't know about that because I see all this and this bad stuff's happening. I can't really see beyond my emotions today that can very easily harden your heart against Jesus because it, it conditions you to interpret your surroundings in light of their effect on you rather than in light of the eternal truth of who God is. Okay? And this hardens you. It hardens you against each other it makes it hard to relate to other people. It makes it hard to have intimacy with God. It really does shut you out and isolate you from the life of God, from the people of God. An evil, unbelieving heart. So then he goes and he compares the situation of his hearers to the same exact Situation that the Israelites found them, themselves in in the wilderness. He brought them out of Egypt. He led them across the sea. They saw all these great and mighty works. And then as soon as life got hard, they started raising a question and grumbling and saying, well, what are you going to do now? Maybe it would have been better if we never got out in this wilderness. Okay, and God was trying to teach them the same lesson that the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach them. Think about those things. Remember we talked about the feasts? They were reminders of the acts of God. 
Everything stems from that. He initiated relationship. He triumphed over Pharaoh. He broke the bonds of slavery. All right? How can you see that and then immediately turn this way and grumble? He hasn't stopped being God. When did he stop being God? When did he stop caring about you? Between the moment that he brought you through the Red Sea and the moment that you began to feel hungry, when did God stop caring about you? (laughs) It's user error. (laughs) God didn't stop. God didn't go anywhere. He's trying to reveal to you where you don't trust him. So he says, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. The present, now. What is the now for? What are the last days for? What is this time between Jesus' ascension and his return? What's it for? For us to learn how to trust God. For us to learn how to have faith and really believe. It's the same lesson that the Israelites needed to learn in the wilderness. That is the lesson of today, the present. We have a space of time. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we have a space of time that God has provided for us to show us what's in our heart, to give us a way out of those things, to lead us out of our rebellion, to teach us trust and dependence on him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's quoted from a psalm. That's an Old Testament truth. That's the truth that we need. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who heard and yet rebelled? The same people who walked through the sea on dry land. Can you imagine that? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Okay? This, is, this is an extended meditation on 1 Corinthians 10. These things were lit, written down for us as an example that we, sh- that we don't do that. <laughs> don't be like them. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, in the present, in the now, in the today, in these last days, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They lacked faith. And that's going to become become the antidote. That's That's what we're aiming for. Out of evil, unbelieving, doubting, faithless, wavering, flagging, shopping around, out of that, into faith. For we who have believed have entered that rest. That's the the future, the promised land. Verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains... A Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. It's a strange sentence. How do you strive to enter that rest? Ask my wife. She's been doing it for the past eight years. Striving to rest. (laughs) 
just need some sleep. <laughs> Ask any mom in the room. They understand how to strive to enter the rest. Um, no, you strive to enter the rest. Why? Because we're not free of suffering. We're not free of challenge. We're not free of opposition. We're not free of persecution. But none of that means that we can't live in the promised life now if we have faith. Now, if we want to take all of the existence of the bad stuff that's still in the world, if we want to take that, the existence of that as reason to not live in the promised land, then we make ourselves the rebellious children of Israel in the wilderness. But we can't enter the rest, but we have to strive to do it. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So he just comes out and he calls it disobedience. You know the truth and you know it better than them. God spoke to them through tablets and Moses and angels. He's spoken to you by his son who hung on a cross. Pay close attention. It's going to be required of you more than it was of them. Because you've received a greater message. You've received a greater truth. You've seen God himself in the flesh. Now, this is awesome, and we'll end here tonight. We, a lot of us know this passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Where did that come from? Kind of following him until there. But, okay, so what what does all this have to do with what he's talking about? What is he saying? He is, as he is going, he's wielding the sword. He's piercing their hearts. How? With the word of God. How much scripture has he just quoted up to this point? And he's saying, listen, this scripture, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Straight to the heart. The word of God is living and active. And he's banking on it. His readers are being, their hearts are being pierced with the word of God. Okay, so he, he right here is saying, the word of God is living and inactive, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, you guys. God sees your heart exactly. He knows exactly what you need. And the word of God has come to you, and it is cutting through all of the complaint, all of the grumbling, all of the weariness, all of the depression. It is cutting through, and it's saying, you know the truth You need to obey the truth, regardless of how you feel. That's what the word of God does. That's an exhortation. Okay? All right. So, this letter, it it really is a full-length demonstration of what we've been talking about a lot in 1 Corinthians 10. How the word of God is, the old, he's talking about the Old Testament, by the way, the story that we are in, people of Israel. The word of God is living and active. It was written as an example for us. 
on whom the end of the age has come. See, even Paul references the, this time, the space and time that we have. This is it. There's, the song says, I love how firm a foundation. That's one of my favorite hymns. What more can he say than to you he hath said? And the next line is straight out of Hebrews. To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> he can't say it any more clearly. If you want further proof, God doesn't have any. He doesn't have any. He emptied the chambers. Done. Okay? What more can he say? And that really is the exhortation. We live in an age between the mighty saving acts of God and the full realization of the promises. Just like the Israelites. This is the lesson. We live in the same kind of age. There is trouble. There is hunger. There is thirst. Some of it's from God to test us. Some of it's from the hand of other people who have free wills who are sinning. The existence of sin in the world. And so here's the question we need to ask ourselves. How do we respond? How do we respond to that stuff? To the stuff that challenges our faith? How do you respond? Your response is everything. Your response demonstrates the extent to which you have really embraced Jesus. Do you waver? Or do you double down on Jesus? Do you go back and pay closer attention to what you've heard? Do you scour the word of God for something that you might have missed? Something important? Or do you want someone else to, do you want someone to bail you out? Do you want another new truth? These old truths, I don't know, they're getting kind of old. I've heard the same thing over and over, and I think I need something new. You don't. You don't. So how do you respond to whatever causes you to waver or get weary? Um, and there's a, this is a wide range of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm banking on you being able to recognize those things in your life. Sometimes it's your own desires, your own temptations. Okay? They, they draw you astray. Sometimes it's a difficult person that God's calls you to, to, to love. Sometimes it's something you don't have any control over. You know, some tragedy happens or, you know, those are the things that really test us. Whatever it is, some, any adversity or hurt or, or, or whatever. How do you respond to those things? Do we allow the word of God? Do we really cling to the word of God and allow it to pour, perform the kind of heart surgery that's needed? We get all mixed up. We get all... Complicated. Our hearts get in tangles. And we're this way and this way and this way. And maybe this and maybe that. The word of God is the thing that comes in it. I love the language here. It piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you, do you discern? Man. Like a stuck pig. <laughs> do you get confused about your own heart ever? Please raise your hand if you do. I do. I'm raising my hand. Do you get confused about why you did certain things? 
in hindsight. (laughs) The word of God is there to discern the intentions of your heart and to cut through all that. And so do you respond to the things that make your faith waver by needing more from God? Or by allowing what he has already done, what he has already spoken to you, what he has already declared in his son Jesus to pierce through your heart. And get rid of all that stuff and cut through the junk. I want to say crap, but I don't think I should from the pulpit. (laughs) Too late. Whatever word, whatever Greek word that Paul was saying when he was rubbish, dung, whatever that was, that's what I'm talking about. Um, The word of God, do we allow the word of God to perform that kind of heart surgery that we need in order to get free of the hardness of heart? It's hardness of heart. And it's been caused by the deceitfulness of sin. We think we need this, or we think that it's going wrong for us here. No. It's that we don't want to look fully on Jesus and receive the truth and live in that truth regardless of how we feel. And the word of God is the, is the double-edged sword that comes and cuts through the hardness of heart. So that's the first question. It, it's, it's a self-examination question. How do I respond to that stuff? Okay. Um, and then the, the second application would be, would be this. We live in community, and we walk with each other as we see each other grow weary. And we see each other, and this Hebrews itself encourages us, exhort one another so that you don't become hardened. This pro- we, have, we need to be in a, have an awareness that this process is happening in every life around us. Sin's trying to get in. Sin's trying to deceive and harden the heart. And so the question is this. How do we exhort one another? I guess the first question would be, do you even have a vision of that? Do you exhort one another? But, the other, but, but more specifically, how do we exhort? Do we try and offer worldly solutions? Or do we really bring the word of God into each other's lives? It's the sword. We, don't, we are powerless Worldly advice is powerless. Stuff that we kind of think is cool is powerless to help each other break through the hardness of heart. We have to bring the word of... That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's bringing the word of God to them. And saying, let this word cut through all of that. That's what he's hanging his exhortation on. Do we do that with each other? Or do we get a good idea? Or do we have an opinion? And we want to get that opinion across to someone. That's not how we exhort one another. We exhort one another by knowing what the word of God says, allowing it to pierce our hearts, and graciously delivering that also to to the brothers and sisters that we walk with. It does the work. The truth is already there. We just need to expose ourselves to it and expose each other to it. Jesus has already come. He has already bled and died on the cross. He has already declared once and for all who God is and what life is about. We have nothing new to add to it. All we have is to grasp it, to let it transform our lives, 
And we'll go on um, next week. He talks about, let's not lay again these foundations of, all right, you're saved by repenting of your sin and believing in God. And then you're baptized into the family of God. Why do we have to get saved every week? That's what he's saying. Let's not go. Let's move on to maturity. All of that happened so that we could be the people of God. And yet here we come over and over and over back to the same place, just the same foundations, just drinking milk. We have not been weaned off of milk. That's what he says. You see how that fits in the overall idea of this letter. You haven't really understood the basics. You haven't grown from there. You keep having to be fed milk. But you need to see that those basics are the foundation of an entire life, an entire way of being in this world. And you're just stuck in that little area and you just keep having to be fed milk. So what he's trying to fill out is if you really get a hold of Jesus, and I love John Wesley, uh, his, one of his, his accountability questions I think it might be the last question, but it, man, it, it really just sticks with you. Is Jesus Christ real to me? That's what that's one of his accountability question was. What a great accountability question, because the letter of Hebrews is basically one big question. Is Jesus Christ real to you? Because if he is, you have everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything has already taken place. All you have to do is wrap your mind around it and allow it to pierce your heart and cut through all that stuff that you've built up through the deceitfulness of sin. All right, so is this good? This, this is for us right now. All right? I'm the pastor of this church. I have probably the best perspective on where we are as a church, where people are challenged. Okay? You need this word. You need to hear, all of you, um, we need to hear the word that the way that we approach these challenges, our response to them is everything. And how do we respond? Do we cling to Jesus? Do we dive deeper into the word so that we can wrap our minds around it finally? Can we let it search us and let, us, let it undo us? Or do we keep reaching out for something that we think is out there, but it's just not. And it'll never be. God wants to bring you beyond weariness and survival. And He wants to bring you forth in glory as the people of God. And if we are just chronically weak need and drooping hands, we are not really embracing the truth of who Jesus is. Amen? So... I'm trying to exhort you. Can you tell? <laughs> How can you not go through Hebrews and, and it turn into an exhortation? That's what it is. We need an exhortation. Okay? We don't need a technique. We don't need self-help. We need Jesus. We need to understand Jesus. We need the Word of God to be living and active in our lives and come and cut through the hardness of our hearts. Um, so I want to do communion at the end because <clears throat> that's what this is. This is a weekly remembrance of Jesus. You could say everything you need is, is wrapped up in this act. Okay? Why? Because this is the life of Jesus himself. Broken. 
body was broken, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. Think about that. Your master died for you. Your master died for you. He didn't have to, but that's what he did. I am among you as one who serves. He allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his blood to be poured out so that you would understand that this life isn't about the absence of suffering, the absence of pain. This life is about the resurrection power of God, undoing the power of death so that we can live godly lives in the present age, in the midst of all the sin in the world, and we can show people what Jesus is like. We can allow our body to be broken, our blood to be poured out, and for the knowledge of God to spread as we do. If we want to be safe, Jesus doesn't make much sense. If we want to walk in the power of the resurrection, this is life. And this is the bread that you'll never hunger after eating. Does that make sense? You'll never be thirsty again. Do you hear that? Hungry, thirsty. These are the things that cause grumbling. And this is the food that causes you to never grumble again. Why? Because you know you have everything you need in this. Amen? So let's come to the table and, and respond to the exhortation. And listen more carefully to the things that have been spoken to us. And allow the Spirit to, to bring those to our remembrance. Allow the Word of God to pierce our hearts. Um, we do have a lot of visitors here. Our, uh, the way we do communion is we'll come up, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the juice. That's like logistically how we do it. Um, but the table is open to everyone who earnestly repents of sin. So if there's any active, ongoing sin that you're in bondage to, um, we encourage you to do business with God before you come to the table. Right? If there's unrepented sin, um, don't come forth. What you need to do is make, get right with God and come and, and partake this meal having been brought back in one with Him. Okay, So that's not a... That's not a bar to jump over. That's an, that's an acknowledgement of humility before God. That the ones who are welcome at this table are the ones who acknowledge, apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, I have gone astray. I am lost. I am broken. So, um, and then also, that if there are any relational conflicts, if there's any bitterness in our heart or Unforgiveness or anything that we're, we're dealing with in terms of our relationships with others, Scripture says, before you come to the altar, if you remember that your brother has something against you, don't come to the altar. Go make it right. Because this doesn't mean anything if we're at odds with the people in our life. And so I, I always want to give this, I, I haven't said this in, in a while here, but if there's ever a reason to stay back from communion, go ahead and take that reason. Okay? There's, no, there's no judgment, there's no expectation, there's no... Why do you think they didn't take communion tonight? <laughs> All right, this is, we want to honor this meal. It's not perfunctory. It's not just because everyone else in the room is doing it. Does it make sense? So we want to honor this meal. Sometimes you might need to stay back. And that could be the, the best thing you can do. All right, so you have freedom to do that. This is never obligatory, right? This is an acknowledgement that we earnestly repent of our sins and that we do we have forgiven and we have let go of bitterness and everything in our lives that would keep us from whole relationship. All right. So um, that said, let's pray and then we'll come to the table.